Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep "The Upturned Face" by Stephen Crane. First published in Ainsley's Magazine, March 1900. Uh, I wanted to read this because we've been reading some Stephen Crane, and I, he's somebody I sort of was forced on in school. I think Red Badge of Courage, and I'm like, I don't like this. I wasn't ready for realism or whatever it is. He's is he, his signature move. I'm uh, slightly more mature now, and I can appreciate it <laughs> a little better. Um, he's a very skilled writer. Um, his construction of scenes and sentences to create feelings within oneself is impressive. Very, very impressive. Um, I don't know that much about his life, but I do know that he did a couple of war correspondence jobs, one uh, Spanish and American War and another um, in the Greek-Turkish conflict um, at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. And um, I was very confused when I was reading this. Um, I didn't think much about it the first time. And then I sent it to you, and then I said, okay, I better check this out. Spitsbergen and Rostina. These are not real military units. Spitsbergen is a place in, on Earth. They don't have a military. Rostina isn't a place on Earth that is of any substantial size. So he is hiding um, or maybe the best way to think about it, there's another story I think we covered, uh, I think it might be just called War by Jack London. And it's set in a a conflict where there's two European-style armies fighting each other. And we know that it's in a temperate zone because there's an apple tree. But who is in conflict? I've seen um, people online saying that this is from the Civil War. This is absolutely not from the American Civil War. Um, there, there are other stories um, with these unit names and these place names, the Rostina and Spitsbergen, and those stories are equally uh, baffling in trying to place where this conflict is. So I think this is like that uh, Jack London story. This is anonymized war stories uh, from reality turned into fiction. What do you think about that? I think that you're more likely to be right than what I was thinking um, because of the way you do your research into these stories, Jesse. Um, I did do a cursory examination and found out that uh, Spitsbergen cavalry is a term that is sometimes used for light cavalry um, after the fact that they were actually used um, in the Svalbard archipelago. That is, the Swedes had a Spitsbergen cavalry. And so that might be real, although you wouldn't expect there to be um, Englishmen. No. Uh, so I don't know whether or not um, somebody with the names like – I mean, and I say English because adjutant is a term that's used mm -hmm. in the British military, but not in the English military and not in the American military. So it doesn't sound to me as much like um, uh, the Spanish-American War as it sounds to me like the Boer War. Uh, since this was published in 1900, and the British are fighting, um, then uh, in you know in 1895, 
Um, also, there's the Crimean War, mm-hmm. that same period. So there, there are two uh, ob- obvious land wars in which you might have thought about this kind of cavalry from the English. Um, but Rostina does not sound like a name um, that we know. But I can't help but wonder, though, if it's sort of being referenced to um, the Crimea, since Rostina could be heaven knows what the so illustrations maybe all, but, but maybe it's all made up maybe yeah. it's all made up the illustrations also back up the idea that these are british soldiers because they're wearing pith helmets and you know sam brown belts this is you know european style military units not american right. uh, it, you, you could be a little bit confused maybe these are american units um but he was a very international guy, right, uh, Crane. He he lived all over the world uh, working his very short life as a journalist and uh, writer. Um, but uh, this story is not really important. It's not really that important to figure out where exactly it's said and whether it's a true story because it feels true. Um, and its subject is fascinating. Um, we have... Uh, uh, about a 12-minute story here. If you would read it to us, then maybe we can try and figure out why it's so powerful. My pleasure. The Upturned Face, 1900. What will we do now? Said the adjutant, troubled and excited. Bury him, said Timothy Lean. The two officers looked down Close to their toes where lay the body of their comrade. The face was chalk blue. Gleaming eyes stared at the sky. Over the two upright figures was a windy sound of bullets. And on top of the hill, Lean's prostrate company of Spitsbergen infantry was firing measured volleys. Don't you think it would be better? began the adjutant. We might leave him until tomorrow. No, said Lean. I can't hold that post an hour longer. I've got to fall back, and we've got to bury old Bill. Of course, said the adjutant at once. Your men got entrenching tools? Lean shouted back to his little firing line, and two men came slowly, one with a pick, one with a shovel. They stared in the direction of the Rostina sharpshooters. Bullets cracked near their ears. Dig here said Lean gruffly. The men, thus caused to lower their glances to the turf, became hurried and frightened merely because they could not look to see whence the bullets came. The dull beat of the pick striking the earth sounded amid the swift snap of close bullets. Presently, the other private began to shovel. I suppose, said the adjutant slowly, we'd better search his clothes for things. Lean nodded. Together in curious abstraction, they looked at the body. Then Lean stirred his shoulders, suddenly arousing himself. Yes, he said, we'd better see what he's got. He dropped to his knees and approached his hands to the body of the dead soldier, but his hands wavered over the buttons of the tunic. The first button was brick red with drying blood, and he did not seem to dare to touch it. Go on, said the adjutant hoarsely. Lane stretched his wooden hand, and his fingers fumbled blood-stained buttons. At last he arose with a ghastly face. He had gathered a watch, a whistle, a pipe, a tobacco pouch, a handkerchief, a little case of cards and papers. He looked at the adjutant. There was silence. The adjutant was feeling that he had been a coward to make Lean do all the grisly business. 
Well, said Lane, that's all, I think. You have his sword and revolver. Yes, said the adjutant, his face working, and then he burst out in a sudden strange fury at the two privates. Why don't you hurry up with that grave? What are you doing anyway? Even as he cried out in this passion, the two men were laboring for their lives ever overhead. The bullets were spitting. The grave was finished. It was not a masterpiece. Poor little shallow thing. Lean and the adjutant again looked at each other in a curious, silent communication. Suddenly, the adjutant croaked out a weird laugh. It was a terrible laugh, which had its origins in that part of the mind, which is first moved by the singeing of the nerves. Well, he said humorously to Lean, I suppose we had best tumble him in. Yes, said Lean. The two privates stood waiting, bent over on their implements. I suppose, said Lean, it would be better if we laid him in ourselves. Yes, said the adjutant. Then apparently remembering that he had made Lean search the body, he stooped with great fortitude and took hold of the dead officer's clothing. Lean joined him. Both were particular that their fingers should not feel the corpse. They tugged away. The corpse lifted, heaved, toppled, flopped into the grave. And the two officers, straightening, looked at each other. They sighed with relief. The adjutant said, I suppose we should uh, we should say something. Do you, do you know the service, Tim? They don't read the service until the grave is filled in, said Lean. Don't they, said the adjutant, shocked that he had made the mistake. Well, he cried suddenly, let us let us say something while we can while he can hear us. All right, said Lean. Do you know the service? I can't remember a line of it, said the adjutant. Lean was extremely dubious. I can remember two lines out. Well, do it, said the adjutant. Go as far as you can. That's better than nothing. And the Beasts have got our range exactly. Lane looked at his two men. Attention, he barked. The privates came to attention with a click, looking much aggrieved. The adjutant lowered his helmet to his knees. Lane, bareheaded, stood over the grave. The Rostina sharpshooters fired briskly. Oh, Father, our friend has sunk in the deep waters of death, but his spirit has leaped toward thee as the bubble arises from the lips of the drowning perceive we beseech O father the little flying bubble and lean although husky and ashamed had suffered no hesitation up to this point but he stopped with a hopeless feeling and looked at the corpse the adjutant moved uneasily and from thy superb heights he began and then he too came to an end and from thy superb heights said lean the adjutant suddenly remembered a phrase in the back part of the Spitzbergen burial services, and he exploited it with the triumphant manner of a man who has recalled everything and can go on. Oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, have mercy, said Lean. Mercy, repeated the adjutant in a quick failure. Mercy, said Lean. And then he was moved by some violence of feeling, for he turned suddenly upon his two men and tigerishly said, throw the dirt in. The fire of the Rostina sharpshooters was accurate and continuous. One of the aggrieved privates came forward with his shovel. He lifted his first shovel load of earth, and for a moment of inexplicable hesitation, it was held poised above its corpse, which, from its chalk blue face, looked keenly up from the grave. Then the soldier emptied his shovel on, on the feet. 
Timothy Lean felt as if tons had been swiftly lifted from off his forehead. He had felt that perhaps the private might empty the shovel on, on the face. It had been emptied on the feet. There was a great point gained there. The adjutant began to babble. Well, of course, a man we've messed with all these years. Impossible. You you can't, you know, leave your intimate friend riding on the field. Go on, for God's sakes, and shovel you. The man with the shovel suddenly ducked, grabbed his left arm with his right, and looked at his officer for orders. Lean picked the shovel from the ground. Go to the rear, he said to the wounded man. He also addressed the other private. You get undercover too. I'll, I'll finish this business. The wounded man scrambled hastily for the top of the ridge without devoting any glances to the direction from whence the bullets came, and the other man followed at an equal pace, but he was different in that he looked back anxiously three times. This is merely the way, often, of the hit and the unhit. Timothy Lean filled the shovel, hesitated, and then a movement which was like a gesture of abhorrence. He flung the dirt into the grave, and as it landed, it made a sound. Plop. Lean suddenly paused and mopped his brow, a tired laborer. Perhaps we've been wrong, said the adjutant. He glanced, his glance wavered stupidly. It might have been better if we hadn't buried him just at this time. Of course, if we had... Of course, if we advanced tomorrow, the body would have been, damn you, said Lean, shut your mouth. He was not the senior officer. He again filled the shovel and flung in the earth. For a space, Lean worked frantically like a man, digging himself out of danger. Soon there was nothing to be seen but the chalk blue face. Lean filled the shovel. Good, good, he cried to the adjutant. Why didn't you turn him somehow when you put him in? This... The adjutant understood. He was pale to the lips. Go on, man, he cried beseechingly, almost in a shout. Lean swung back the shovel. It went forward in a pendulum curve. When the earth landed, it made a sound. Plop. Powerful story. Um, it's a scene. It's not a story, right? It's a, it's a scene. Um, and it so turns on those tiny little turns. Um, the description of hands and faces always, and there's a little bit of commentary, um, from the narrator, the uns, you know, the over-the-shoulder narrator, who is Stephen Crane, I guess. But it's, it's very subtle. Um, I, I've highlighted so many things. Um, let me just give you a few. The men thus caused to lower their glances to the turf became hurried and frightened, merely because they could not look to see whence the bullets came. So, this is a, a scrambled burial of a body uh, while a battle is happening. Um, and the people who are burying this messmate, right, one of their fellow, that could have been them, I think that that's very important to why everything's happening the way it is. The, this is the inability to cover up the face, the inability to recall the words of the, the uh, service. And then the, the words of the service themselves, are they're not words I've ever seen at a 
such a ceremony, but they're they're certainly rhyming with those words. Um, so this is like a it, it feels like it really happened, and he's he's changed the names of the units and the people in order to uh, protect the innocent in a certain sense. It's almost like Dragnet, right? The names, <laughs> the incidents are all real and the names have been changed to protect the innocent. But none of these guys are in- innocent. They're all soldiers. And covering up that face um, makes them not innocent. Touching the blood on the uniform makes them not innocent. If they touch it, then it's real. And the anger directed at the soldiers who are burying burying the body, digging the hole and burying the body, one of them gets shot in the process, right? It's like, um, this is very real. Even though maybe it never even happened. Uh, my understanding of um, Crane is when he wrote the Red Bad of, Badge of Courage, he had never seen ba- war. That's my understanding as well. He just seemed to intuit it. So maybe maybe he wrote this like that, but he got it all right, as far as I can. I'm never having seen battle myself. He got it all right, I think. I think that uh, that this feels it feels um, realistic, as you're saying, and I think it also feels general. That is, yep. Spitz, Spitzbergen is in the far north of, of the of the Earth, and uh, what we have here certainly, if we follow the illustrations, uh, we have something taking place where the weather is warm. Mm-hmm. So uh, by having these well-known, I mean, we all know who's. What's, we don't all know, but many people know what Spitzbergen is. Few people know if there's a Rostina. Um, I think there's an attempt here to generalize, to mm-hmm. say something that I'm I'm writing about something, and so a comment like um, uh, the difference between the hit and the unhit. Oh, the that's unhit, so important. Right, they don't have to look back anymore. They know what they have to do, but the unhit, they're still looking. It, it's so stupid. I mean, no. these guys say attention. That means you have to stand up. Even after they've said those Rostina sharpshooters are getting our range, mm-hmm. they still go along these officers and tell the men, attention. And of course, what happens is the guy gets wounded. He's lucky he didn't get killed. Mm-hmm. There's This is the, – the adjutant doesn't say to Lean, do your men have shovels? Right? He says – and he doesn't even say, do they have trenching tools? Right. You would use a trenching tool to dig a trench, that is to say a trench latrine. Uh, when I was a kid and uh, bought army surplus equipment to go camping as a teenager, I in fact bought a little trenching shovel that was foldable and could attach to my uh, backpack. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't call them trenching tools, he calls them entrenching tools. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? When you get entrenched, it's just trench warfare. Mm-hmm. It's made famous, you know, 14 years later by World War One. But this is trench warfare. These guys then are being asked to take the same tools that are used for preserving their own lives in order to bury someone else. There's a conflation between the the action 
of a, of a soldier, presumably to live, and the actions of a soldier to deal with death. This, the distinction between death and life seems to mean nothing to these officers. You know, it's not, I mean, what may, matters to them? Well, as a guy you've been in the mess with for a long time, you can't just leave him there. But you don't have to treat him as if he's the senior officer. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at the realities of life. They're looking at, you know, what are the rules of of etiquette? What are the rules of the army? And what are the tools they give us? The same tool that takes life gives back life. The title of the story is The Upturned Face. And I cannot help but think that what we're supposed to understand is that this guy, this corpse, looks at us and silently asks us, what the hell are we doing? My body is the demonstration that staying here will get you killed. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? I love the opening line. What will we do now, said the adjutant, troubled and excited? Bury him, said Timothy Lane. Following on the title, The Upturned Face, instantly I know that what will we do now means we are going to have to find out what happened then. Mm. And when the answer is bury him, what I understand is that his upturned face will make it possible, impossible to truly bury him. He will leave a message behind him. I saw all that the very first time I read this, maybe because I read more slowly than most people. But I think that's a sign of how good Crane is, mm-hmm. whether it's realistic to war or not. It certainly is realistic to how people try to deal with things that they just don't want to have to deal with. They lean on the structures of society. These are the ethics. These are the rules of the institution. You do that and you don't have to complain. If you were the senior officer, then we would have to behave differently. Make up your own minds. Mm. At least the privates understand that they need to, they need, they have no choice but to do what they're told. But they don't want to. They understand staying alive is the more important thing. That This is a critique of war. It's a critique of the class structure. It's a critique of stupidity. One of the differences between this and the Red Badge of Courage, which is set in the Civil War, um, is that here, as you said, as we began, Jesse, we don't know where we are, which means we have absolutely no justification for rooting for one side or the other. There yep. is no compelling reason to believe that these guys are at war other than the fact that they're at war. This is, I think, a, a deeply, felt, um, deeply felt story about something that Crane was seeing, a world full of war starting in the you know, about 1894, uh, the Battle of Mukden in 1896, 1895, at that point was the, the battle, it may still be, that killed more single people than any other battles. Like half a million people died in that, that one extended battle. So the last part of this story, the adjutant understood. Yeah, 
His lips were pale. Go on, man. Almost in a shout. He just has to end this. Lean swung back the shovel. It bent forward in a pendulum curve. That's wonderful. Because right? time just keeps going on. When the earth landed, it made a sound. Plop. That's it. It has no real meaning. It's just the sound of the earth. Our attempt to impose order, our fighting, all of it is trivial. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's universal, is, I think, is, is what, we're, what we're supposed to take away from it. One of the weird things that um, I, I, I wanted to be sure I was right in my instinct to think that these are fictional units. So I, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll dig deep into Svalbard and Spitsbergen. And the, uh, one of the weird things that, of course, makes sense about if you're living in Spitsbergen today is that they don't bury people there because the <laughs> ground is permafrost. Right. So if you are die, you die, you're dead, they have to carry you with them. And here, this is the opposite. They have to leave the battlefield. They are retreating, but they can't do it. Why? Because this officer needs being buried. We knew him. We messed with him. Why does he need to be buried right now? Because we knew him. We messed with him. That's uh, – it just got one of your guys shot. Everybody's worried about the encroaching uh, Rostina sharpshooters. Those are the guys who shoot well. Obviously, they shot well enough to shoot this guy just above his top button. He's dead. He's got a blue face. That could be me on the ground there. We've got to do something. What should we do? It's a very universal story, but the way he does it is so good with the turnings and the hands. Wooden fingers is one of the phrases I saw there. It's like, yeah, it's pretty hard to... If you have wooden fingers, it's pretty... Uh, I'll read that. Lean stretched his wooden hand and his fingers fumbled blood-stained buttons. At last, he arose with a ghastly face. There's the face. There's all these scenes where the soldiers retreating to the, hi the hill, he turns back three times. It's all about the turning. The turning of the earth, the turning of the faces downwards towards the dead body, the upturned face towards the the men above who are blamed by this corpse for whatever action caused this, which is not important. Very powerful. Is this realism? Is this what this is called? <laughs> well, I, 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 you're asking me as an English professor. Yeah. Yes. Okay. People, yes. People would call this realism. Um, but, I think the more you lean on this as realistic, the more we need to understand that it is a a potent manifestation of human psychology rather than a realistic portrait of a particular environment. Right, right. Uh, for, for instance, um, by the year this is written, 1900, heck, even in the American Revolution – the projectile that comes out of uh, a, a, a shotgun, a musket, a rifle, a cannon, the projectile that comes out travels faster than the sound. Mm -hmm. That is, if you can hear the sniper 
he missed you. Yep. These guys know that. They should know that. And yet, the unhit guy still takes the time to slow down whatever slowing is required when you're trying to run forward to turn back and see where the bullets are coming from. Um, nobody does that if they really know what it if they really know what it means to be fired on. You just do broken field running, make it hard to be hit, and don't Zigzag. worry about whether you exactly just whatever you can do to keep out of the way, keep out of the way, and let the sharpshooter worry where you are. You can't worry where the sharpshooter is. The guy who's been hit has learned his lesson. The guy who hasn't been hit hasn't learned the lesson, even seeing the guy who's been hit. That makes me wonder, these two guys, Tim Timothy Lean and the adjutant, which means he's an other officer, but he is a lower level officer than somebody else, but clearly not a lower level officer than Timothy Lean, because they act as if they're equals in terms of giving orders. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that the officer that this adjutant is the adjutant to is Bill. I He's would assume, guy. I would assume, but they don't—they uh, don't say it. They don't That's say true. it. Right, but here they are. They're officers. My God, remember what American, what what British officers were like. Remember what they were like in the American Revolution. Well, warfare requires us to stand up straight and march forward. So they did, you know. And you know, the colonials hid behind trees and shot at them. Um. And, and eventually won. This is not only saying that you shouldn't fight. What it's really saying is don't do anything that stupidly gets you killed for zero reason. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this? We know why the privates are doing it. They have no choice. Why are the officers doing it? They have a choice, but they're following rules. It's the rules that kill us. Yep. So it says plop at the end. Plop. That's the sound you that make when you hit the ground. Exactly. But for those around, that's not the end. If we want to think about what's really going on, Crane suggests there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.